what it says in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 15. He saith unto them, this is Jesus speaking, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The title of the sermon tonight is, I Will Build My Church, or I guess another title that we could call it is just, When Did the Church Start? Or, What Is the Church? And... Uh, this is something that is often, there is often a debate about when the church started amongst Baptists. And the other day um, on Twitter, I did a poll asking people when they believe the church began. And I basically chose the four positions that I commonly hear uh, from the Baptist world of when it's debated. Now, what I believe was not even an option. It was funny because if you're a non-dispensational Bible believer then this is not a confusing subject for you really at all. And it was funny because I got some comments from people, and I even had some people messaging me too, like I think they were confused by the question because they're like, well, isn't it just, and then they went on to explain exactly what it was. And it's like, this wasn't for you. This is for our dispensational Baptist brothers, all right? Our, the non-dispensational people, this is not a confusing thing. But it, I'm telling you, dispensational theology has messed Baptists up so much, I, I'm almost embarrassed to call myself an independent fundamental Baptist. If it wasn't for the independent in there, I probably wouldn't even call myself that. But fortunately, I can say, well, we're also independent, so don't associate me with those weirdos. Because it has really messed up a lot of people's theology. But when I did that poll, the four options I gave was, did it start with Moses in the wilderness? <clears throat> did it start with or John the Baptist or with Jesus and the Twelve? right here where he says, I will build my church, or at Pentecost. And those are typically the four positions you hear. 50% went with Jesus with Jesus and the 12. That's what your common independent fundamental Baptist will teach, that Jesus started the church with the 12 disciples. That was the first church, and so they will. Uh, that's, um, those were probably all my IFB followers. There were 24% that went with Pentecost. Those were probably some of the trendies. Uh, that follow me, I don't know. And then 22% went with the church in the wilderness. That might have been some of uh, the non-dispensational people thinking, well, I know it's not those other three. So they just went with, they went with that one. And then there was 4% that said John the Baptist. Now, not many people believe that, but, or, but um, the truth is a lot of your hardcore Baptist brighters, and they believe that it started with John the Baptist. So uh, it looks like I might have had uh, a small percentage of Baptist brighters on there. But that is a common belief amongst the Baptist brighter world. So before I go into the, what I believe about the church, I want to quickly debunk the main arguments um, that the crowds teach who believe that the church started sometime after the New Testament period. Okay, Because I believe it started long before that. But they will tell you no it was something that started in the new testament and they can often get along with those who think it was john the baptist or jesus in the 12 or pentecost but when you know we're the bad ones if we think it was any time before that but i'm just going to show you what i believe 
from the scriptures tonight that I think is real clear, that I think is real simple. I think they're the ones that complicate things. And when you see, when you stop and think for two seconds about what they're doing with the scriptures, you'll just see how weak of an argument that they really have. So the main argument that they use to prove that the church didn't start until Jesus and the 12 is because Jesus said, I will build my church. And if Jesus said, I will build my church, I mean, doesn't that imply he has not done it yet? Doesn't that imply that it's something that is in the future? Because that's what he said. I will build my church. But think about this. The fact that Jesus used a phrase with future tense words does not imply that it hadn't already begun. I mean, we, if we were building a church building, we can be halfway through it. And if we're like, you know what, we're going to build this church. We're going to get this done. doesn't mean, you know, even right now, are we not trying to build this church? I mean, then when we say, you know what, we're, you know, if we had a theme for the year, I will build my church or Jesus Christ is going to build this church. It doesn't imply we haven't been doing it already. It doesn't imply that it hasn't been done to a certain extent, but it's not done yet. And you know what? I still believe Jesus will build the church. And I'm using your future tense word, but there I am in no way implying when I say that, that he has not started it yet. But somehow they will take that phrase, and that means not only has it not been, you know, that it not been going already, no, he's starting it then. That's ridiculous. And so again, if I say I believe Christ will build his church, doesn't mean I don't think he hasn't started. I'm saying it's just not done. And I believe it was not done yet. And so Jesus wasn't claiming to start something new, but it is clear from the scriptures that he was continuing something that had already started. Okay. Now, you could say that just like, well, it doesn't explicitly say he's continuing something there. And so just, you know, so just like I'm saying it doesn't explicitly say he's starting something. They could turn around and say, well, it doesn't explicitly say he's continuing something. But what if I could show you another scripture where it does explicitly say that and it proves it was something before? I mean, isn't Bible supposed to change our mind on these things? I believe when Jesus said, I will build my church, that it in no way implied he was going to do it in the future as if it hadn't started yet, but that he was going to continue to do something. And he specifically mentioned Peter, too. That upon, and he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And think about that line, too, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is such a key line right there that I don't think people fully grasp the importance of what he said right there. And by the end of the message, you're going to understand what he's talking about there. But turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 11, because we are going to see that the way I am interpreting what Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 16, that it, that is clearly explained in Ephesians chapter 2. And so he says in verse 11, wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time year without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, this isn't just talking about something from five years ago. This is talking about in time past, in previous ages. He said, that's how you were as Gentiles. You used to be aliens. 
You were alienated from the things of Israel, from the promises of God. You had having no hope without God of the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain of one new man, and so making peace. Now, I feel like I'm preaching a little bit to people who are not in this church who might hear this message, and so I feel like I have to go back to kindergarten with them. I understand I don't have to do that with you all. But if Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, okay, made us who used to be separated from Israel, has now made it where we're one with them, doesn't that kind of imply we're a part of what used to be there in the Old Testament before the cross? It sure does. I mean, it doesn't imply it. It flat out says it. What we used to be separated from, we are now fellow citizens with them. That's spelled out right here in Ephesians 2. So we are connected to something from the Old Testament. Now, then what they start doing as if they have never read the Bible before, they will start talking about all the differences between the way things were in the Old Testament and the New Testament, proving it's two completely different things. But Paul is showing here, no, you are now a part of what you used to be separated from. And then we've got a super clear passage in Ephesians 2 explaining how that works. Jesus Christ went and led captivity captive. Now, they think that's something that happened in good hell, but what it was, it was him removing all the things that separated us from the things of Israel. All the things that Jesus conquered on the cross, all those things that held us captive, Jesus defeated all those things. And so now we can be a part of something we were once separated from. Not so we can be a part of a new thing. No, so we can be a part of something we were once separated from. But these people, you've got you to gotta teach them what leading captivity captive means. You've got to teach them, I mean, all the first principles of the Bible. It's, just, it's so sad uh, that we have to do it. And we don't have time to cover all that stuff. But he goes on here, saying that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached peace to you that were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. And look at this. And are built. So these people who have gotten saved in Ephesus, these Gentiles, they are built upon something. They are built upon a building. You know what it looks like? It looks like Christ is building his church. But let's look at what we're built upon. We are built upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom, also, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So he said in this passage, you are built upon something that has a foundation that includes the prophets and something you are built upon something that at one time you were separated from showing that what we are a part of this building that we are part of is something that was there before the cross. Do you all understand that? So when Jesus said, I will build my church, 
he clearly is talking about how he is going to continue building his church. And we can continue to say, Jesus will build his church. Every time people are getting saved, they are becoming a part of that. And one of these days, one of the, right now we do have, you know, we have our local churches and things, but one day we're all going to be one church. One day we're all going to be one assembly, one congregation, and he is going to bring us all together and that's going to be a great day. So there is no doubt what Jesus said he was going to build upon Peter was something that was also built upon the prophets. And Peter was also included. Peter was a part of that building. And you know what? It's not taking anything away from Jesus. I am a part of the church. I'm not a foundational part of it, but I'm a part of the building. And obviously, saying Peter is a rock, we've talked about this before, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Okay? Jesus said it. Paul said it. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. We've let the Catholics taking a true statement and then going to and then jumping to false conclusions with it, we've caused them, you know, their misuse of that to cause us to butcher an interpretation of it. And we don't need to do that. That's not necessary. So Christ uh, Christ built uh, you know saying he would build his church was in fact a statement showing he would continue a work that had already begun. We are part of the same building that Moses is a part of and that Abraham is a part of, and all the prophets are a part of. So the other argument they use too, and I, I, I saw somebody in a book recently I was reading use this argument. This is a bad argument. But again, people, when, they're just, when they get proven wrong, they get desperate sometimes, and they get rebellious. They're literally rebellious against the Word of God, but they'll use the law of first mention argument. Now, folks, the law of first mention the law of first mention. Okay, first off, show me in the Bible where it teaches the law of first mention. Okay, and that's an argument. Okay, listen, preachers I respect are using that as proof that the church didn't start until the New Testament because of the law of first mention. And that is an actual reason that there's... I thought about reading a part of the book, but I like the guy too much. I didn't want to get up here and bash him or anything, but I just think he's wrong. I think still think he's a good guy to think he's wrong in this area. But... That is a law made up by theologians, not the Bible. It doesn't always work. It's, and it's not the law of first mention. It's just the first mention principle is the way some people put it. And again, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it doesn't. What the first mention principle is, is often in the Bible, the first time you see a word used, and this happens quite often, but not all the time, but often the first time the Bible uses a word, it, in that passage, it defines that word. And then, and then that definition is something you can kind of see used throughout the Bible. And so it is an interesting thing to look into when you're studying, but it's not a law. Okay? We do not just throw out Ephesians 2. We do not throw out other clear teachings of the Bible because of the law of first mention. That doesn't even make any sense. But people are saying that because Matthew 16 is the first time the word church is used in the Bible you know, if we're using eSword to do our Bible studies, which is, what they're, which is what they're doing. But here's the thing, and I've said this before, this is only a problem amongst King James Only Baptists. And we are King James Only Baptists, ladies and gentlemen. We believe every word of God is inspired. We believe it's preserved. But you know what we also believe? We believe there's such a thing as synonyms. Synonyms are a real thing. Two words with the same meaning. And folks, 
If there's no such thing as synonyms, then our Bible has mistakes and contradictions in it. Because it says in Hebrews 2.12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? And you know that's quoting Psalms? It's quoting Psalms 22.22, where it says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. Whoa, what's going on here? Things that are different are not the same. Church and congregation, they can't be the same thing. Yes, they can. They can be the same thing. Whenever they translated the Bible from, from Hebrew into English, they, would, they used congregation. Whenever they translated it from Greek to English, they used church. It's not that big of a deal. It's not a problem. It's a synonym. It has the same meaning. It's not a problem. And it's, it's not a problem with our theology at all. It does not mess up anything we believe at all when the Bible uses congregation uh, versus church. The, they, they have the same meaning to us. But if you're dispensational in your theology... If you're still trying to separate the church from Israel, that creates a bunch of problems for you. But, you know, and then what do they do? They try to hide behind their King James onlyism by going into retardation, and that's not necessary. We, you know, you can be a King James onlyist, believe every word of God is pure and inspired, without being a weirdo. You can do that. It's very possible. But for some reason, these people can't do it. So, uh, and, and here's, uh, t- turn to Acts chapter 7. Okay, Acts chapter 7. Another verse that we like to use, too, because they'll say, you know, first time it's used in the Bible is in Matthew chapter 16. But we can also show you where the Bible talks about a church before the time of Christ. And we see this in Acts chapter 7. And it says, this Moses, they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge, the same did God send to be a ruler and delivered by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was with, that was in the church in the wilderness. With the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and their hearts turned back again into Egypt. Okay, So right there, it, Stephen, while he's preaching, he's talking about Jesus and said it was him that was with the church in the wilderness. He said Jesus was with the church in the wilderness. Now in this book, and again, I'm not going to name him out of, out of respect. He said, in response to somebody who teaches the Church of the Wilderness Doctrine correctly, he said in that book, that wasn't talking about Jesus, it was talking about Moses. Okay, now I'm going to show you how wrong that is. And, and again, and then he went to the Law of First Mention principle. No, the Law of First Mention, it's the first time it appears in the Bible. That's not a law, okay? That's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not a law. Let me show you. Uh, when I read that in the book, I was like, wait, that's not talk, that's talking about Moses, not Jesus? And I, I do have a lot of respect for him, and I'm thinking, and so I went back and I looked again. And I looked again, I'm like, no, that's talking about Jesus. But here's why they're missing it. This passage right here that he's quoting, that Stephen is quoting from Deuteronomy, is one of the most key passages in the Old Testament in helping us understand how New Testament theology or replacement theology works 
and I never heard a dispensationalist talk about this passage. I talk about it all the time. I bring it up all the time. It is a foundational verse. Peter talked about it. Stephen talked about it. Two to the Jews. They need to understand this. But look what it, look back at verse, uh, verse 37. It says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you from your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. Now, we know that was Jesus. When God gave them that law, he told them in the law, you do all these things, but he said, I'm going to raise up a prophet. Like Moses, you listen to him. And when Je- So that's, why, that's how we know, too, when Jesus came along and he said some things that might have seemed to be somewhat different than what we have going on in the Old Testament, they were not violating the law when they listened to Jesus because the law told them when he comes, listen to him. And so when he, so he said right here, he's talking about Jesus. Peter spells it out for us. This is Jesus. Stephen spells it out for us. This is talking about Jesus. And so he said unto him, shall ye hear? And he says, this is he that was with the church in the wilderness with the angel, which spake unto him in Mount Sinai, and with our fathers to receive the light of the oracles given unto us. It was Jesus that was with the church of the wilderness. It was him that was there. He was there with the church of the wilderness, the one that God prophesied he was going to raise up on their brother. Jesus was always with them. He was with the angel that spake to Moses in Mount Sinai. He was there. They were both there. Moses was there. Jesus was there. But this he that he's talking about here was Jesus. Stephen was preaching Jesus to them. He's not preaching Moses to them. He's preaching Jesus to them because they thought they were following Moses. Stephen is letting them know, no, Moses told you to follow Jesus. And this Jesus that we're preaching, he's not some new God. He's the one that our fathers worshiped. In the wilderness, he was the one that was with them in the wilderness. We see examples, too, of God in the, uh, you know, the, uh, manifesting himself in the pillar of fire in different ways where Moses couldn't even look at him. He had to hide and he had to cover his face. But then we also see examples where Moses is talking to God face to face like a man speaks to a man. How does that work? Well, you know why? Because, again, we believe in the Trinity. That was Jesus. That's who Moses was talking to. It was Jesus. He was with them in the wilderness. And and notice how Stephen called them our fathers. Well, Stephen called them our fathers because he's preaching to Jews. Okay. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers... Who's he talking to? Corinthians. What are they? Gentiles. We've been talking about them on Wednesdays. We've been going through the book of Acts. He said that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Looks like Christ was with them in the wilderness, wasn't he? And notice it says... It was our fathers, our fathers. Why would he say that to the people of Corinth? You know, whenever we talk about our founding fathers, okay, does that mean we believe we physically descend from George Washington and all those people? No, but they were the ones that founded the country that we are a part of, that we are citizens of. They are the ones that set up 
you know, the, the, you know, the Constitution. They got all these things going. They were the ones that started this country that we are a part of. So we refer to them as our fathers because of the fact that what they started, we are still a part of. You often hear about church fathers and things like that. You know, why? Because they're the ones that set up certain things that we are a part of today. It's kind of a figurative thing. And so you've got people from Corinth. Okay? And so it's like, and they are a New Testament church. If the New Testament church is some new thing that started with Jesus that is not connected to the church in the wilderness, then how could those Jews in the wilderness, how could that church in the wilderness, that nation of Israel, that's a separate thing, how could they, how could the people of Corinth claim them as their fathers? They couldn't. But Paul said they were your fathers. You know why? Because that church in Corinth was a part of that same building. They were a descendant of that. So there is no doubt, ladies and gentlemen, that what we are a part of okay, is connected to that church in the wilderness. We are a descendant of that. We are spiritual descendants of the church in the wilderness. And you know what? We go back even farther than that. We go back even farther. And, and again, people don't understand this because they don't understand what a church is. They don't understand what a congregation is. They don't understand what it means to be chosen. They don't understand any of these terms. Look what it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end of the promise, might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, that would be those physical descendants, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham. Who is the father of us all? Who's he talking to there? Romans. He says he's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in the faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So we are children of Abraham. You know why? Because we're people of faith. Because we believe in Christ, like Abraham did. And so because of that, Abraham too was called the father of many nations. He is referred to as our father. He is the father of us all. Because we are of faith. We're connected to Abraham. Just like we are connected to the founding fathers of our country as Americans, we as People of faith, we are connected to the people of faith going back, and we see here all the way to Abraham. All the way to Abraham, we see this is, is connected to. And so the other argument that they will use to prove that the, the New Testament church was a new thing is they will show all the differences between the Old Testament congregation and the New Testament church. And again, I've, this is where we feel like we've got to go back to kindergarten with these people. But Hebrews 9, verse 8, says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, 
in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertained to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. So notice when it's talking about Israel, God gave them all these sacrifices. God gave them a temple. God gave them a, priest, uh, a Levitical priesthood. God gave them all these things for the time then present. And then... God, God said, you're gonna, you know, God gave them those things for that time, but it was only going to last until the time of Reformation. Now, what was being reformed? Israel. That old covenant. That, that old system. And notice that you know, when God, you know, that was not just for a time until God could start a whole new thing. No, it was until the time of Reformation. You can't, whenever you start something, there's a difference between starting something and reforming something. There's a lot of churches out there today that need reforming, but there's some churches that are so bad, you're better off just restarting somewhere. God did not restart the church. He reformed it, is what he did. And so, if Israel got reformed and all those things were removed, then let me ask you, what is that system now? Okay. Couldn't it be this New Testament church we're a part of? So, you know, whenever they start proving that we are not Israel, because, and that's, and they do, they get so arrogant, they get, they start acting real childish. I mean, listen, folks, it's like they, they're preaching to a congregation that they are convinced are imbeciles. And that must be because I hear a lot of amen sometimes from the audience when they're preaching. It's like, you know, you say anywhere in the Bible we're supposed to be sacrificing animals. Come on, people. I mean, are we supposed to be sacrificing? No, of course not. You know, when was the last time you saw a Levitical priest? Do we have any of those things right now? Obviously, we're something different. Or, obviously, God finished with that and he reformed it. And you know what? So let me ask you. If, you know, we are two completely different things. Hebrews 9 makes it very clear God was reforming Israel. So let me ask you, where's that reform system now? Where is it? What does it look like? Where is, where, where is this system that God reformed that no longer has a high priest, a Levitical priest, but a high priest after the order of Melchizedek that we all know is Jesus, you know, that doesn't, that has, a, that's all about a one-time sacrifice once and for all, that's a saved to the uttermost, meaning you never lose your salvation. Where is that system? Oh, that's what you guys are preaching all the time in your churches. That's what you guys are practicing in your church as Baptists who believe one of your Baptist distinctives is the priesthood of a believer. How do we have a priesthood of the believer? You know why? Because God reformed the priesthood and he removed it and he got one high priest, Jesus Christ, and all of us who are saved, we're all priests now. Every one of us are priests. Next time a Catholic priest tries to get you to call him father, you know what? Tell him, it's like, if you think a priest needs to be called father, you need to be calling me father. Cutting you ladies, tell them the same thing. You know, because you're more of a priest than he is. He, he's a false priest. We're a real priest. The church, got, or the, the Old Testament Israel, it got reformed. It says, but in verse 11, but Christ being come in high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered and once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. 
And so, we're not going to go ahead and read the rest of that, but, I mean, Hebrews 9, we could talk about that all night, but that, that's just New Testament theology 101 right there. Writing to Hebrews, showing them what has changed, what has been reformed. And as Christians, where do we always go to to prove our practices are biblical, to prove that we don't need to sacrifice animals? We go to Hebrews. Not Larkin's Dispensational Truth. We go to Hebrews. That shows us what changed. So, yes, I mean, good night. It, there are differences between the Old Testament congregation and the New Testament church because Christ reformed that Old Testament congregation. So, of course, there's going to be differences. It would be ridiculous for us to go back to doing these things when Jesus said, no, you're done. When Moses said, when he comes, you do what he says to do. And he said not to do those things anymore. He said to do these things. So you know what we're doing? We are continuing. We're, co we're continuing, and we are no longer following the old orders. We're following the new orders that came from Jesus Christ. But it's the same body. It's the same body. No doubt about that. So the other argument that they use to prove that, and this, this, this is more proof that these people are getting their theology from textbooks and not the Bible. When you say things like that, listen, I'm not stupid. When people say these things to me, I know they haven't been studying their Bibles. I know they've been just listening to preaching from dispensations and reading textbooks. But they will tell you, this is what you all need to understand. The church was a mystery to the Jews. And, and now, why did they say that? Well, because you can find the New Testament church in the Old Testament, in prophecies and things, you know, in some dark sayings. But they'll, they'll explain how, whenever they say the church was a mystery to the Jews... They've been reading dispensational books that every time they see the word mystery, they go on and they create like a, a whole new thing. That Ruckmanites are real good at this. They've created a law like, like the law first mentioned, where any time a mystery is mentioned, it's revealing a whole new truth and like a whole new system. But the truth is, the mysteries were always just giving a better understanding of an old truth. They weren't revealing a new thing, but they were, giving, they were giving more information about an old thing. That's what a mystery would do whenever they would reveal a mystery. And so where they get this idea that the church was a mystery to the Jews, that's partially a true statement. But they get that from Ephesians chapter 3. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Because again, often when people are teaching false doctrine, they will make a true statement and then they will jump to a false conclusion with it. The Calvinists are the best at this, but often uh, dispensationalists do the same thing. But Ephesians 3, 1 says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me to you, word. Now, a Ruckmanite reads that, dispensation, whole new system. We got a whole new thing coming right here. No, we're not Ruckmanites. We just believe the Bible, and we let the Bible define itself. Okay, a dispensation... I'm dispensing something to you. I'm giving you information. I'm teaching you something about the grace of God that was not previously known. Now, what is that? Is he going to explain a whole new system here? Or is he going to show them something that just was not previously understood fully? Because he says how that by revelation, he may known unto me the mystery. Oh, mystery, trigger word right there. Whole new system coming up. You got to understand the seven mysteries. That's why y'all don't understand the Bible. We haven't studied the seven mysteries. I heard one saying that the other day. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote it for in few words, 
whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, and is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see, folks, what they didn't understand was, notice how I stopped reading right there. They didn't know, they didn't know about the church. That was a mystery. They didn't understand that. So what we got going on right here, ladies and gentlemen, God always knew it was going to happen. But you know what? You can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. This is a new thing. This is a, a special dispensation. Something was not... Uh, no, no, that's wrong, folks. That, that's not even close. This is what it is. This is the mystery. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ by the gospel. They, that's what they didn't understand in the Old Testament, that the things that God had promised to them that the Gentiles would be included in that. That's what they didn't understand. Not that there would be a whole new system. Not that there would be a whole new, a whole new group. A whole new people of God. Not, not that at all. No, that when that new covenant came, they did know about, you know, it was prophesied in Jeremiah that a new covenant was going to come. But what they didn't understand is that Gentiles were also going to be a part of it. And even, the, even with that, I do believe they understood to a certain extent that God was going to do something with the Gentiles because it's spelled out in the Old Testament, but they didn't understand how that was going to be done. They did not know how, and that's another subject for another day. There were things they knew about something for the Gentiles coming in the future, but they didn't understand how that was going to be made possible. They didn't understand how things were, you know, from the law were going to work with the Gentile people when the law excludes them. They didn't understand how that was going to work. Now, you and I, we could look back and we say, I got it figured out right now. The cross. The cross is what fixed all that. They, they didn't understand how that was going to work before. We can look back and understand that now. But again, right here, if they would just read verse 6 and focus on that and make that the mystery, then they don't have two people anymore. We have, we're the same, same group, same people. That's what the mystery was. Not a whole new gospel. Not a whole new people. So that's just a horrible argument. And I'm not going to take the time to prove this beyond any shadow of doubt, but the mystery was not the Gentile church, but the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. And there is so much scripture on this, we don't have time to go into it. So the reason there's all this confusion on this subject is because so many are still trying to separate the church from Israel, creating a division where there isn't one. But the Bible says rightly divide. Okay, we're supposed to rightly divide, but that doesn't mean you just divide everything. Does that mean we, you know, we got to rightly divide you know, the Trinity into, you know, well, I, okay, we, got, we already got the three in one, but the Bible says two to divide, so we've got to divide. No, there's some things you don't divide. There's some things you don't separate. Okay? And, that, and that's a twisted meaning of what it is uh, to begin with anyway, and I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But this, this confusion all comes from people's unwillingness to accept the fact that the church in Israel are one. They, they refuse that. And so let me explain what I believe the Bible actually teaches about the church that in reality is really simple. And that is, first, the church, it was not started with Christ, but it was reformed by Christ. Jesus Christ greatly changed the church, didn't he? There's no doubt about it. Now, the church has always been a visible assembly of believers, but not just any assembly, too. It has to be called of God. It has to be one with God's authority behind it. You can't just get any group of people and them just together and say, hey, look, we're a group. Hey, look, we're assembling. We're a church. We saw a group over by the river the other day assembling together. 
protesting in favor of abortion. That was an assembly. That was not a church. Y'all understand that? So a church is, a, is not just any group of people that get together, but it's one that is sanctioned by God. It is one that has a proper authority behind it. And these groups, there has always been people around, saved people, that had God's authority behind them, that were assemblies of believers whose practices and whose authority was recognized by God. And we can find this. And so let's just kind of take a look at this in the Bible quickly, as fast as we can, starting with where we are now, and let's work our way backwards. Okay? So notice in Revelation 22, 16, all the way at the end of the Bible, Jesus said, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So we see seven churches that are specific churches that are mentioned in Revelation, and they were all churches. They were all local assemblies recognized by Jesus Christ with the authority of God behind them. They weren't just any groups of people, but again, people with proper authority. And I'm not going to preach a message on where the proper authority comes from and how you can spot, you know, know when it has proper authority. That's another uh, subject for another day. But uh, it is important to understand they are not just any group who meet together. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what the kingdom of heaven. We know what the kingdom is. We've been talking about that. It's that ministry. It's that administration of the church. It's that authority that we have. And Jesus told Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that's why we do. We believe in apostolic authority. But where do we get that apostolic authority? From the Bible. When you get away from the Bible, when you get away from the authority of the word of God, you lose the keys, ladies and gentlemen, because you are now in rebellion against God. He can remove your candlestick. So, not going to go into all the details on, on what all needs to be included on in that. But again, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, showing the authority. We see in Matthew chapter 18, we look at this passage this morning. We're not going to go through it again. When Jesus was talking about when you have a dispute between your brother, if, and, and they, you know, they can't make a resolution, he said, bring it before the church. He said, bring it before the church. And he said, and again I say unto you, that if two or three, uh, sh- two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And before that, I skip verse 18. He said, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus here, talking about this church, he's saying they have authority. What you do as a church, your decision as a church stands in heaven. Okay? And listen, it has to be a real church. And I don't want to, I don't want to get sidetracked on this. But don't you go home with your family tonight and be like, all right, one, two, all right, we've got three, we're a church. And then just start declaring stupid No, that's not how that works. And uh, you're not biblical at that point. So uh, it's a, you know, and I, that's another sermon for another day. But again, in Matthew 18, there's no explanation here of what a church is. Notice when Jesus said, I will build my church. And then in and Matthew 18, when he's talking to disciples, and he said, I'm bringing for the church. Notice disciples were like, what's a church? Jesus, that was never mentioned. The church was never mentioned in the Old Testament. What's a church? He didn't have to explain what a church was. You know why? Because I think they understood what a church was. You know why? Because it was the same thing. Jesus told them, bring it before the church. You know what they used to do in the Old Testament? They would often bring things before the congregation. 
And the congregation would make decisions. We see in, in 1 Corinthians 6, we talked about that this morning, how Paul said, when, you know, don't go to the heathen court system. He said, bring it before the church. This was something they would have been familiar with because it's something that they did in the Old Testament. Now, in the Reformation, now in the Old Testament, congregations, you know what they would often do when they decided someone was guilty? They stoned them with stones. Now, unfortunately, in the Reformation of the church, we became a spiritual nation with a spiritual possession and, and, and a spiritual inheritance. And so we don't have the authority to physically put someone to death. You understand that? And it's important that we, got, that we get that part too in our replacement theology that we, we don't have a continuing city anymore. We don't have a land. So while governments who do have a land, who do have authority, they can still execute people. They can still throw people in jail and all that kind of stuff. As a church, we can't do that. But what we can do, we can put them out of the congregation. We can do that. We do have that, we do have that authority. That's something that changed in the Reformation. And so whenever a dispensation is like, well, look at how they did things in the Old Testament. That's not how we do it in the church. I know. It's called Reformation. That is one of the things that was clearly spelled out, changed, and reformed. So we don't have the authority from God to fight holy wars, to conquer land, or uh, conquer a physical nation, but a physical nation and a physical government. They can do those things. They can fight wars. They can execute people, punish evil, do all that. And Christians... We can participate in some of that stuff as a citizen of that nation. But we don't do these things as a minister of the church. Okay? If you're a Christian and you go and you decide to join the United States military, that just means you as a Christian, you just, you, you, you just happen to be a Christian and you're in the United States military. When you fight a war, you're doing that under the authority of this nation, under the authority of the United States military. You're not doing that under the authority of Liberty Baptist Church. Don't go around shooting Muslims in the name of Liberty Baptist Church, okay? We do not have that authority, and you know, we're not going to support that. That is, not what, that is not what we are there for. But I don't, even, I don't believe a Christian is necessarily in sin for fighting in a war. A lot of good people have fought in wars in the past. But you don't do it in the name of Christianity. You don't do it in the name of a church that changed in the Reformation. But nations have always had that ability. They've always had that authority. And so that's a separate thing. We need to make sure we understand those things. So, it's an important question. When it comes to spiritual authority, who had it before the cross? Okay, who had spiritual authority before the cross? And I think the answer is simple. The nation of Israel or Jerusalem, they had it. Okay, now, we already know that that's what it means too, that when the kingdom was taken from them and given to another nation, they lost that spiritual authority. Why did they lose that spiritual authority? Because they did nothing with it. They were shutting people out of the kingdom. So Jesus said, I'm taking that, from, I'm taking that kingdom from you. They lost that authority. So they, continued, they still had a building called the temple, but did it have any power anymore? No. All they had was some physical power and not even much of that because the Romans were there. So Jesus removed that spiritual authority from them. And you know what? He gave it to people like Peter. He gave it to the apostles. And we have it today as a, as a church. Israel lost the kingdom. So who had, so here's another question too. Who had the kingdom or authority before Israel? And you know, I think you could say clearly guys like Abraham and Isaac. 
They were, they were specifically chosen of God. Now, God specifically called Abraham. Think about this. God specifically called Abraham during a time when Noah's people had made an epic mess of things. Because who was in charge after the ark? Noah. I mean, he's the father of the world. Noah was alive when God called Abraham. But did Noah do a very good job of commanding his children? No, he did a terrible job. And when God chose Abraham, God said, I know him. He'll command his children. God said that about Abraham. So that's where Abraham, he became the chosen of God. He became the one with the authority. He was the one that God spoke to. He was the one that God gave the circumcision to. Abraham was the one with the authority. So you could say that Abraham and his whole household, even though he didn't have any kids yet, he had his servants. And uh, you know, later God gave him the circumcision and they did all those things. You can kind of say that was a church. Then. And we are definitely connected to Abraham. But, you know, I think it even goes back farther than that. And because here's the other question, too. Who was in charge before Noah? Well, Genesis 4. Now, when you start getting before the flood, the Bible doesn't give us a, hardly any details about what believers were doing during that time and how the church operated. We don't really know much about that. But we do see before Noah... In Genesis 4.26, it says, And to Seth, to him also there, were born, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And we see that during the days of Enos, men were calling on the Lord. And think about it. You know, who were these men, and where did they get their authority? Where did they, they get their You know, where, you know where they got their authority from? These people, during Enos' day, they were calling on the Lord. They had a, an authority that was given to them. They were chosen. You know where they got from Seth, Enos' father. Notice what it says in Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So remember Abel, Cain and Abel. So Adam sinned, Adam fell, Adam plunged the human race into existence. Now I believe Adam got saved, but Adam... We don't see him being chosen of God as one that he, to be the, you know, in charge of the spiritual things. But we see that when Cain and Abel, Adam's two sons, brought their offerings to God, God accepted Abel and he rejected Canaan. Abel, you could say, was the chosen person. And so during that time, because like who were the chosen people before the Jews? You know, it was, you know, it was Abraham and Isaac. Well, who's it before that? Well, it was Noah and his family. Who was it before that? It was, it was Seth. Who was it before that? It was Abel. But Cain killed Abel. So, no, so, so the thing is, the church or congregation, it's not just any group of people who come together, but they are a called out assembly. They are a people chosen of God. They are the chosen people, the one who God gave his oracles to, that God gave the spiritual things to. Now, during Seth's day, God hadn't given very much yet. During Abraham's day, God gave a little bit more. During Moses' day, God gave a lot more. After the time of Christ, God gave a ton more. But you know what? God had given some things during that time, and those who were in charge, you could say, were the church during that time. And notice this, okay? People chosen of God, they were always people of faith. Every time, they were people of faith. God originally chose Abel. Cain got jealous and killed him, though. Before he had any children. God ends up choosing Seth. 
and his people. But you know what? We see they were eventually corrupted because the sons of God intermingled with the daughters of men. And you know what? The earth got filled with violence. So then Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But you know what? Noah's line rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel. And then God chose Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. But you know, and God changed his name to Israel. But you know what? Unfortunately, they also fell. As people now think about this, every one of these, every one of these men that have been chosen by God, every one of these churches, we see, physically speaking, came to an end, and kind of had had a had some kind of corruption, where things kind of fell apart. Now we understand because all those of faith, they're still saved and will be a part of the resurrection and a part of that final church. But notice, all right, but, but notice this, that you know, God preserved the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob long enough for the true chosen one to come. And who is that chosen one? Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus Christ said about his people? Seth's people messed up. Noah's people messed up. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's people messed up. And things, things fell apart. But you know what? God preserved them until Jesus Christ could come. And you know what Jesus said about his people? You know what he said? The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. You know what? This system that we have today that has been reformed, that is connected all the way back, all the way back to the beginning, it will still be going when Jesus Christ returns. It will still be here. We'll still be getting people saved. We're still going to do these things. We've been around here for 2,000 years, and if we need to be around another 2,000 years, we will be here another 2,000 years. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, what? You say, well, you, knew te- you, you replaced with theology people. You all think you could do something that Israel couldn't do. I don't think that for two seconds. That's why, we got, that's why we put our faith and trust in Christ and got saved. Because we understand we can't do the things of the Old Testament. We can't do the things of the law. But Jesus did do all those things. Jesus Christ, and that's what Hebrews 9 is all about. Hebrews 9 is all, is all showing how the sacrifice of Jesus Christ took care of all those who were before of faith and all those who after would be of faith. You know why the church is going to prevail over the gates of hell? Because of what Jesus Christ did. Because of the cross. And so this new chosen assembly that we have, not named by Seth or Enos or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Israel, but named by Jesus Christ, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This group will be victorious because of Christ and because of him alone. So folks, to try to separate us from those of faith in the Old Testament... You know what? Frankly, it's theologically ridiculous. And, and you know what? I think, it, I think it borders on, it borders on, dare I say, damnable heresy. I, I, I don't believe all these people are unsaved or anything like that, but I believe they are dangerously ignorant. And I believe it is wrong in many ways to say things like that. And so all these people that were like messaging me is like, didn't the church probably start back in Genesis? Yeah, it did. It really did. I don't know if people understand, you know, how that authority and all that stuff works and that we could talk a lot more about that. But hopefully this makes it clear that, and, and we do, I do the same thing. I use the phrase New Testament church. 
When I say New Testament church, though, I hope everybody understands. I'm not talking about it like it's a new thing. I'm just taking, I'm basically saying since the Reformation. I mean, we, got, we can't even say that anymore because then people think we're talking about, you know, the Catholic Reformation we're not connected to. But no, I'm just, I'm just saying this is how we've been doing things since the Reformation. And, and so that's, what, that's what I mean when I say New Testament church. So I hope that was clear and makes sense. If you have any questions, let me know. But let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word and all the great truths that it gives us. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to be diligent in studying these things. Help us not to follow this lazy theology, Lord, where we're just repeating things out of a commentary. We've never put any study into it. And help us not to just be blind followers of men, but to just uh, diligently study your word so we'll not be ashamed and we will actually be able to rightly divide the truth in the biblical sense. In your name we pray. Amen.